It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The first ruling of the Supreme Court's term was a blow to veterans, and it was unanimous. The justices ruled that disabled veterans who missed the one-year filing deadline can't file for retroactive disability benefits, even if the delay was caused by their service-related injuries. A Navy veteran, Adolfo Ariano, had asked the court to suspend the filing deadline because schizophrenia and post-traumatic stress disorder prevented him from filing in time. His attorney, James Barney, asked the justices to apply that principle of equitable tolling. And so we expect this to be something that's applied sparingly, but in the cases where it's truly deserving, and for veterans who truly do deserve consideration of an equitable tolling claim, it ought to be available. James Barney joins me now. He's a partner at Finnegan and a former naval officer. James, tell us about your client and what he went through. Mr. Ariano is a Navy veteran. He served in the Navy uh, in the late 1970s. He was on an aircraft carrier when it had a collision with a freighter, with another ship, and he witnessed several of his shipmates being injured and swept overboard. And after that event, he developed some severe mental disabilities. They went undiagnosed for some time and untreated. And then eventually, his family was able to get him uh, psychiatric treatment, and eventually he was able, with the help of his brother, to make a claim for disability benefit due to his mental disability. But by the time he did that, uh, approximately 30 years had elapsed from when he was discharged from the Navy. And so he wasn't able to get the retroactive benefit dating all the way back to his discharge from the Navy. And that's what this case was about. Your argument was based on equitable tolling. Explain that for us. So for my client, his allegation was that he was not able to timely file his disability application within one year, which is what the deadline requires. And because of that, he was asking that that deadline be told under this doctrine of equitable tolling. And the doctrine of equitable tolling requires a person seeking uh, that type of tolling to show good cause, to show, well, why was it that you were not able to meet that deadline? And he felt that he would be able to show that if given an opportunity. But because of the way the law had been interpreted by the Veterans Administration, he was never given that opportunity because they said equitable tolling was not available to him. During the oral arguments, it seemed to me at least that several of the justices were sympathetic to your argument. Were you surprised by this unanimous decision against your client? I was a bit surprised that it was unanimous, and I did also sense that some of the justices were sympathetic, not just to Mr. Ariano in particular, but but to the broader argument 
that this particular provision in a veteran's statute that is supposed to be construed in the veteran's favor. Um, there's a lot of pro-veteran case law going back decades saying that veteran statutes are somewhat special and they're supposed to be interpreted as much as possible um, to the benefit of veterans. And there were a number of questions from several of the justices that seemed to be getting at that point. So I was a bit surprised that it was unanimous, but, uh, you know, I'm never surprised at anything, to be honest, and I understand, you know, how the court got to where it got. Well, explain to us how the court got to where it got. So there was a threshold issue that the government had placed a lot of emphasis on, and that had to do with whether or not this particular provision was a statute of limitations. And that really was the government's main argument, that the presumption of equitable tolling doesn't even apply here because it's not a statute of limitations. The court, in its unanimous decision, actually sidestepped that question altogether, did not even address it, and moves right to the second issue, which was whether, if the presumption of equitable tolling is applicable here, can it be rebutted? And the court concluded that because of the structure of this statute, the, the way it's written, they concluded that any presumption that would apply for equitable tolling would be rebutted and therefore was able to reach that decision without really determining whether or not the presumption actually applies. Justice Amy Coney Barrett wrote the opinion and at one point said that hard and fast limits on retroactive benefits can create harsh results. And it seems like they did in this case. How did your client react to the decision? He's very disappointed, not just in his own case, but because he understands that other veterans are in the same situation as him. And and he's hopeful that Congress might be able to address it through legislation. It is true. I mean, Justice Barrett is absolutely correct that the effect of this ruling is going to work a hardship on some veterans. There are veterans that have very compelling reasons why they're not able to timely file their disability claims. They uh, sometimes are suffering from very severe injuries, physical injuries, sometimes suffering from very severe mental incapacity. There are instances, unfortunately, of people suffering from the trauma caused by military sexual abuse. So it will absolutely work a hardship on some of those veterans who missed their deadlines. Uh, And that's unfortunate. Congress can fix that, obviously, but short of that, with this decision, many of those veterans are going to be, unfortunately, adversely affected. I will add that the court did add a footnote at the end, which might be one glimmer of hope. The last footnote on the last page notes that the court resolved only the applicability of equitable tolling to this particular statutory provision, and the court does not address the applicability of other equitable doctrines, such as waiver, forfeiture, and estoppel. So those are still avenues that are available to veterans who may feel that their particular circumstances warrant some sort of equitable consideration. During the oral arguments, Justice Alito asked about the Edgewood Veterans Brief. Is that another case involving equitable tolling and disability benefits? There is another group of veterans that have cases pending at the lower court. These are sometimes called the Edgewood Veterans. The Edgewood veterans um, are a group of veterans who participated in testing conducted by the military that involved very caustic substances such as nerve gas. Some of them were subjected to other chemical agents, and they were sworn to secrecy. And because they were sworn to secrecy, they were not able to apply for benefits without violating their secrecy oath. 
which could have subjected them to court-martial or other criminal proceedings. When Congress finally did lift that secrecy ban, many of these veterans promptly applied for benefits, only to be told that they did not qualify for retroactive benefits because they filed too late. And those veterans have argued for a different equitable doctrine called equitable estoppel, essentially arguing that the VA is equitably estopped from enforcing that deadline against them. And those cases are all currently stayed at the federal circuit pending the decision in this Ariano case. And so there's still some <laughs> there's still some work to be done by the courts to figure out whether those veterans can be given any relief. Does your client have any other legal avenues open to him? No, this is the end. Uh, Supreme Court is the end. But like I say, uh, the only recourse now, at least on this particular issue, would be some sort of fix by Congress. And do you know if there are any veterans advocacy groups asking for that fix? There are certainly advocacy groups broadly advocating Congress to improve the laws in favor of disabled veterans. That's always an ongoing effort. I don't know of any that are specifically lobbying on this particular issue. It's possible, but I'm just not aware of any. James, you're a veteran and you represent veterans. And I'm wondering if the Supreme Court is not showing enough deference to veterans. In November, they declined to take up an appeal from an Air Force veteran who had challenged the authority of the Department of Veterans Affairs to deny him certain disability benefits. And Justice Neil Gorsuch dissented, writing that the VA's misguided rules harm a wide swath of disabled veterans who serve this nation well. I mean, is there enough intervention by the Supreme Court in these cases? In my opinion, no. I think that pro-veteran canon, as it's called, should be more closely adhered to. I think in years past, certainly after World War II and in the Vietnam era, that canon was more often relied upon and cited by the court as a reason to decide close cases in favor of the veteran, you know, when when there's a reasonable interpretation of a statute that in close cases, the doubt should go to the veteran. And what I've seen from the Ariano decision, as well as other decisions in recent years, is that pro-veteran canon is getting little more than lip service. I know your firm works with veterans. Tell me a little about it. My firm, Finnegan, is a, is really an intellectual property boutique. Um, what we do uh, as our day job, so to speak, is um, litigation and, and other uh, work involving patents and trademarks and copyrights, trade she- secrets, and so forth. Uh, but we have a very robust pro bono program. And many years ago, probably about 20 years ago, we decided to expand that pro bono program into veterans' work. Uh, We do a lot of work with veterans at the agency level, so we represent them when they take their appeals to the um, CADC, that's the Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims, and we represent them at that level. And uh, we have a lot of success uh, representing veterans at that level, and, and many times their claims are able to be resolved at that level. But for those that don't and they have meritorious appeals, we also represent them Uh, at the next phase, which is the um, Court of Appeals uh, for the Federal Circuit. And uh, we handle dozens of uh, appeals for veterans to the Federal Circuit. And this is the first that actually uh, made it all the way up to the Supreme Court, but there may be others. Thanks so much for joining me on the show, and thank you for your service to the veterans community. That's James Barney, a partner at Finnegan. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. 
But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Kagan. I'm wondering if you would just comment on, you know, the ancient legal principle of if, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. <laughs> and the justices did follow that ancient legal principle by throwing out a case that was closely watched by in-house counsel about the scope of the attorney-client privilege. During oral arguments, many of the justices suggested there was no need to change the scope of the attorney-client privilege when communications between an attorney and a client have both a legal and a business purpose. Here's Justice Amy Coney Barrett. Because we can't really say tie goes to the runner, right, when the burden is on the person invoking the privilege. We can't get into this whole put a percentage on it for the reasons that we've already talked about. So maybe it's best to say nothing. And the justices said next to nothing, issuing one line saying, quote, the writ of certiorari is dismissed as improvidently granted. Joining me is M.C. Sangaila, a partner at the Complex Appellate Litigation Group. M.C., this is referred to as a dig, dismissal as improvidently granted. Explain what that means. Well, to some degree, given that the order just is one line like that, describing why it happened is somewhat reading tea leaves. But there are various reasons that the court, you know, does this. So it agrees to hear the case based on the issue presented in the third petition. And then something happens along the way as they're diving into the case that causes them to say, we shouldn't have granted it in the first instance. And so we're going to dismiss it and not decide it on the merits. But it is rare because it only occurs in about 2% of cases before the court Is it surprising that it happened within two weeks or when they know they know? I've actually uh, studied this previously, and um, both studies for terms prior to the ones I studied, I studied the 1990s to the 2000s, and the average time after argument when they would dismiss as improvidently granted or dig a case is 62 days. So generally, they tend to go a little bit longer in working through the opinion, so it is relatively quick. So one of the reasons that the Supreme Court might dismiss a case as improvidently granted is that the case is not a good vehicle for resolving the issue. And I'm wondering if that might be true in this case, because the case was shrouded in secrecy. It involved a grand jury subpoena, records related to the preparation of tax returns and the ownership of cryptocurrency. So it might not be the best case to resolve these issues of attorney-client privilege. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think there are a couple of different things that could have caused this, and, and maybe all of them together, you know, mm-hmm. resulted in the order. And one is what you mentioned. It's true that from a legal standpoint, there's a whole separate body of law dealing with tax advice and tax-related items that are treated you know, somewhat differently from other types of attorney-client privilege documents. So perhaps they thought, hmm, we don't want to wade into it with this particular tax context. But they did know that, basically, at the time the third petition was presented. So that could be part of it. But I also wonder whether there are a few other things at play. One of them would be at argument, there seem to be somewhat some shifting approaches, shifting positions that seem different from the brief. And maybe they said, oh, hey, wait a minute. You know, now that you're saying this is your position, we have a different view, you know, about whether this is a good case to decide these issues and what you want us to decide seems maybe slightly different from what we thought when we had the cert petition to begin with. It's also possible based on Justice Barrett's comments of argument where she said, hey, is there some sort of middle ground we could do? We could affirm the Ninth Circuit ruling in this case and kind of let the existing case law around the country stand and speak for itself without further elaboration or explanation from the court. That kind of result, if that's where people landed at conference after argument, could be accomplished just as well through, through a dig. If we're not going to explain how this standard, whatever standard we announce should be applied, maybe we just let it percolate some more, wait for a case that has, you know, a different context and one that's public that people can analyze to see how we're applying things and uh, give us more time to think about what, what we would say and what we would want the standard to be and maybe let the lower courts kind of work out whatever conflict exists. And let's just go back for a moment and remind us all about the issue here? Sure. So the question here is actually one that's very important to, to lawyers and their clients, particularly, I would say, in-house counsel really are focused on, or focused on the issues in this case, because the question is, when you have sort of dual purpose communications, you have both a business aspect of advice and legal advice, which often get intertwined in the corporate context. What is the test that you use to decide whether the attorney-client privilege applies to that? Is it a primary purpose test, which is what the Ninth Circuit announced in this case, or is it more of a significant purpose test? And the question, and depending on how it's applied, could mean that you have more protection for communications or less protection for communications. And having some certainty about how that test is applied, what the test is, and what people and clients can anticipate you know, with something that particularly in-house counsel we're really looking forward to in this case, because there is, there is, in the phrasing of the test, a circuit split currently, depending on where you are in the country, the test is a little bit different in terms of whether these mixed communications, the the legal part of them is, is protected. The dig means it's as if the case never happened, right? Right. The Ninth Circuit opinion, you know, reappears and becomes the, the governing result in the case. And yeah, everything now remains as it was prior to the third petition being filed. Does that mean that the circuit courts who use a different standard than the Ninth Circuit, they can just go on applying that standard because the Ninth Circuit isn't precedential, even though the Supreme Court has 
not affirm, but left alone the Ninth Circuit's decision. I mean, do the other circuits have any yeah. kind of, you know, responsibility oh, to follow it? Yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. Some kind of nudge, you know, from, from the court <laughs> having done this. Right. Uh, I don't think so because it's following from an argument, uh, an, an oral argument where there was a lot of um, back and forth about how much the standards were actually different in practice. So Justice Kavanaugh talked about that. Uh, Justice Gorsuch talked about that, saying, well, you know, maybe in practice they essentially are applied in a significant purpose way, not really a primary purpose way. And so they were suggesting that maybe there's a merging of the standards. So it could be in this case, because of the way argument happened and the, the various comments that were made by the justices and then the dig, um, it's possible that courts could say, oh, we, we have a little more freedom maybe in how we apply these standards. And I think that's ultimately at least the short-term outcome is that a lot of the discretion in how you're applying this test remains with the trial judges, remains with the district court. And they also have, you know, if their circuit hasn't spoken or even if it has, it's possible that um, a court that's adopted the primary purpose test could say, hmm, yes, but applying it to these circumstances, I think it should be applied in this way, which may be more of a significant purpose test. So it may be that by doing the dig and allowing the courts to work it out uh, themselves at the circuit level and the district court level, that we might sort of reach that consensus that Justice Kavanaugh thought said, I really I think you're saying two different things, but in practice, you really end up applying a similar test. So the question would be in the Ninth Circuit, is that true? Because obviously there was a, a significant difference to the outcome of this case, depending on how the test was applied. And the test was applied pretty strictly, both by the district court and the Ninth Circuit. So it really depends on which circuit you're in about how they, you know, how they take what the Supreme Court said. Yeah, and Justice Gorsuch also said the tests sounded a lot alike, but you don't think the mm-hmm. tests are a lot alike. Yeah, I mean, they're certainly different on their face, and I think that depending on who is applying them, maybe they merge in some cases, but um, why have two tests then? I guess I'll just be super practical, right? Why, why have a primary purpose in a, in a you know, sort of significant or substantial um, purpose test? Why make that distinction if it really means nothing, um, ultimately? So I think the courts think there's some difference there. It's just that I think what Justice Gorsuch and Kavanaugh were saying was they may have announced two different standards, but at least in a few cases and in certain contexts, as they end up applying it, some of the courts seem uncomfortable with a primary purpose standard and end up essentially applying it as a, as a you know, significant purpose. So basically, it's all left for the courts to work out on their own at this point with the various input from from the justices that argument about where they might go with it. Do you think that this will lead businesses to engage in more siloed communications or to get more advice from outside counsel? Yeah, I mean, I think both of those things are possible. Certainly, that was the advice given prior to her petition being granted was, hey, to minimize uncertainty and risk, the best thing to do is to really carve out your pure legal advice and your business advice into separate communications so we don't have to, you know, get into the point of applying 
this test and being subject to the discretion of a particular trial judge. So you submitted uh, an amicus brief on behalf of one of the organizations, and there were several organizations that submitted amicus briefs. Um, yeah. Are people very disappointed in this? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, the issue is one that's really at the forefront for companies and, and their in-house counsel in particular. And so it's kind of uh, a situation where you, you might deal with this uncertainty, but then you have a hope that that certainty will come, right? We'll have <laughs> clear guidance and then we'll know what to do. And then your hopes will kind of dash. You're like, okay, not now. We're going to have to wait for that. So there is a certain level of, of disappointment and let down um, after the argument. But I also think that the argument was sort of, you know, maybe a little disappointing and scary in itself to all of the amicus and all the in-house folks who were focused on on having the, you know, substantial um, and not the primary standard be the test. There was a little too many voices in the court that suggested that they might not be looking at the practical aspects, but that practicing lawyers and bar associations and in-house counsel would be looking at. There's, there's a, I said, disappointment immediately, but also I think honestly a little bit of relief that, um, you know, we're not going in a strong direction towards a really, really tough task. Thanks so much for being on the show, MC. That's MC Sangaila, a partner at the Complex Appellate Litigation Group. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher-level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.